Amen. And we are in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and as we have a habit of doing here at our church is we go through books of the Bible, and so we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and I'm super excited because you're going to read a story with me today that I'm sure you've, many of you have read dozens of times, if not many more than that, and yet there's several things, at least 10, that I saw in this story this week that were like, wow, brand new, and so I'm excited about sharing them with you. And I'm going to ask you to read with me this morning. I'm going to read the first slide, and then you read every other slide with me, okay? Does that sound good? Yeah. All right, cool. Verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, it says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And everybody together on verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And I'll read verse 23. It says, And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Verse 24. And he went with, that, with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25, everybody. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And it says, And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, everybody, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And then it says, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed in her disease. And then all together in verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And then everybody on verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then all together on 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Verse 36 says, But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And everybody in verse 37. And he followed... Allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Sorry for messing you up there. My bad. Verse 38. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Verse 41, all of us, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kume, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And verse 42 says, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And then the last verse, we'll all read it together. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, we are amazed at your word, that these are not just legends and myths. These are actual stories that happen to real people, real people just like us, real people who desperately need Jesus. We're thankful that you're there for us and you were, as you were there for them. Open our eyes this morning. Open our hearts and our minds so that we may receive the word of God and for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. This is a picture of my mom and dad. Uh, really uh, old picture. It's probably about 35 years old. My parents are both deceased now. Uh, the little baby in the middle is my oldest son, Adrian, who's 36 years old. Um, but my dad, when I was a little boy, like a lot of little boys are, I thought my dad was the smartest, strongest, biggest, richest man in the world. And, you know, and uh, my dad owned a company called F.C. Millbourne Incorporated. He had about 45 trucks that drove all around our town with his name on the side. So I thought we were, the Millbournes were a big deal. I thought my dad was a big deal. But then I grew up. <laughs> and the, the more I got to know my dad, I realized my dad was far from perfect. He had lots of flaws. And the more I knew him, the more I realized he wasn't as heroic as I thought. Aren't you glad that Jesus is totally different? The more you get to know Jesus, the better he appears, the bigger he appears, the smarter he appears, and just the more powerful he appears. Uh, the, the more I get to know Jesus, and I, I've been a Christian since I was nine, and I've been preaching the gospel for 35 years, and yet I study verses like this passage right here, and Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger and better and better. And I'm so glad that Jesus isn't someone that we find flaws in as we get to know, like all of our other human relationships. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat, so he starts on the western side, and he travels over to the eastern side. He goes from the Jewish side to the Gentile side, okay? And he wasn't afraid to mix it up with everybody from the wrong side of the tracks to different ethnic groups to whatever it may be. And what happened on the first trip across? Remember a big storm, and they thought they were all going to die. And like, hey, Jesus, don't you even care that we're drowning? You know, and Jesus does what? Peace, be still, and this, the storm just shuts off. So I imagine on the trip back, they're all like real quiet, like rowing, like don't say anything. <laughs> We're, we looked really stupid last time, you know, and hopefully no more storms come. But if they do come, you know, Jesus will take care of us. And when they got there, yet again, there's a great crowd. This passage right here in Mark chapter 5 really marks the peak of Jesus' ministry. This is when he's more popular than ever. And keep in mind that... Um, Popularity is not always a good thing, okay? We strive for it. Jesus didn't, by the way, but he did. He became popular. And so there's a great crowd, possibly thousands that are waiting for him on the other side. They probably heard about all that happened on one side. They knew about all that he did on their side before he left. And so it says one of the rulers of the synagogue. So synagogues were obviously the Jewish equivalent of our church and our building. And they, they had a, basically a board of elders and this guy was the ruler. He was like the chairman of the board of elders at their synagogue. And his name is Jairus, which was a good Jewish name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, think about this. In the synagogue, who's the bigwigs? It's the Pharisees. It's the scribes. Okay? And right now, do they like Jesus? No. They don't like Jesus at all. He's a threat to their ministry. They notice the synagogues are getting empty and people are out on the hillsides with the rabbi named Jesus with an outdoor synagogue and drawing bigger crowds than they ever had. And they're, like, like Pontius Pilate would say, they're just jealous. And so 
Jairus is in that mix. So it took a lot for him to be desperate enough to go to Jesus because Jesus is not popular with them. He's popular with the crowds, but not with the religious folk, which 2,000 years later, that's still true. Religious people don't want the real Jesus. They just want some semblance of Jesus so they can feel good and assuage their guilt every weekend. But he, he, he humbled himself and he fell at Jesus' feet. And he implored him, which is a way of earnestly begging him. He says, my little daughter. Now, Luke tells us that this is Jairus' only daughter. Now, this is in a day when kids were something you want to have a ton of. It's not like the average American family that has two and a half kids, and I feel sorry for the half a kid. But they, these are families that want to have dozens of kids if possible. For their family to only have one, something's gone medically wrong. And so he make, it makes this daughter, which she doesn't have a name, by the way, but it makes that daughter much more precious to him because it's his only daughter. And she's at the point of death, and he asks Jesus to do what he knows that only Jesus can do. And maybe he's waited too long. Maybe she's been sick for months who knows but now when she's at the point of death he's like i i don't care what all y'all pharisees think i'm going to go to this guy because he's obviously the only one that can help her and he and it says that he went with him jesus is walking with them aren't you glad that god that jesus walks with you through your problems it, jesus walks with him and a great crowd followed and thronged about him now this word thronged we don't use it a lot today but just like in Houston, that concert that happened recently where the crowd just pressed in so much and people started getting trampled, this is almost about what happened, is happening here. That's why there was so many times when the disciples were concerned for Jesus' safety because the crowd could literally like crush him. And that's what's happening about here. And it says, so he's walking with Jairus to go to his house to heal his daughter. And along the way, the crowd just is pressing him. And there was a woman and who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Okay, now, to us, that statement sounds really weird, and we don't know all that's involved in that, but let me just kind of give you a background. First of all, this woman doesn't have a name also, and, and yet Jairus does have a name. He's named in that situation, and she's got this issue. We don't know if it's a feminine problem, but it probably is, but it's been going on for 12 years. Anybody recognize that number 12? How old is Jairus' daughter? 12 years old. So when you read your Bible and you're reading your Bible on Monday morning and you're going through the Gospel of Mark, pay attention to detail because there's a reason for that. Because 12 years previous, Jairus' whole life lit up with this beautiful baby girl. And there was so much joy, so many hugs, so many kisses, so much to share with all the family and so much excitement because they finally had a baby girl. And 12 years previous to all this fell apart. Everything was, see, when you have a blood problem in, to Jewish culture, that means you don't go to synagogue anymore. You can't worship at the temple. You can't be around you. Your husband is forbidden to even be near you. You can't hug anybody. You're considered unclean. And so for 12 years, this woman has not even been touched. It's very likely, and this is speculation on my part, it's very likely that if she was married, she's not anymore that her husband probably left her over this issue. Her, she had to be separated from her family. Um, psychologists say to be healthy and emotionally stable, you need four hugs a day. This lady has had zero for 12 years. She could not go to church with everybody else. She could not share family meals. What you just had experienced in Thanksgiving this past week, she couldn't be a part of 
any of that. So 12 years ago, Jairus' life is like amazing, and 12 years ago, it was the beginning of the end for this woman. But now we fast forward, and now Jairus' life is being turned upside down. So she had suffered much under many physicians. And so she went and saw doctors, but she didn't just see them. She suffered. And I did some reading, and I can't even begin to share this in mixed company, but some of the things that doctors might do to cure her problem were unimaginable and would cause her a lot of suffering. And these physicians, so-called, weren't afraid to take her money. She kept paying doctors and paying doctors. Did she get a cure? No. And now she spent everything she had. And if she's single and she's a woman living in the first century with no money, She's not in a good situation at all. She can't even begin to make a living by illicit means, let alone any other means. All she can do is probably beg. And so not only did these things not help her, they actually made the problem worse. You know what the biggest section in the bookstore, if you go to Barnes & Noble or any of those places is? It's always the self-help books. All these psychiatrists and doctors and all these therapists telling you how you can make your life better And you know what I believe about 99% of them? They make your life worse. Because they have nothing to do with the Bible. Most of them have nothing to do with the Bible. They're all about you can be a better you and and you need to boost your self-esteem and you need to cut off all your bad relationships and you need to do all these things. And a lot of it is, is just pop psychology just reinvented and repackaged and it's humanism and it's anything but the Bible. And most of them, like this lady, it'll make matters worse, not better. And so she had heard the reports about Jesus. I think that detail is important. She didn't see this firsthand because why? She's kind of an outcast. So she had to hear about this. Aren't you glad someone told her? Aren't you glad someone told you reports about Jesus? What's our job? What is our, what is our job in this world? To go out into all the world and preach the gospel, whether that is Brookside Village, Pearland, Santa Fe, Dickinson, or Kenya. Our job is to give reports about Jesus so they can hear and go to him too. And then so it says she came up how? Behind him. You know, if you want to scare somebody, what do you do? You come up behind him. She wasn't wanting to scare him, but she did want to sneak up on him. Because why? She doesn't belong in the crowd. She is unclean. She's not even supposed to be near people at all. So she probably changed her outfit, you know, put a, uh, something over her head, and just kind of went stealth. And again, this is a crowd that is pressing in on Jesus. So this took some work. This took some effort. But she does it. She comes up behind him. And what does she do? She kneels down and she touches his garment. Now, um, Matthew adds some detail for us. It says, Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. So what was Jesus' occupation? He's a rabbi. And how could you tell a rabbi in public? They had tassels at the bottom of their garment. Remember in the Old Testament when the priest would go in? He had like pomegranate things tied to the bottom with his tassels so that you could hear him jingling while he was in there so that you knew he was still alive and God didn't strike him dead for doing something wrong. Well, this lady sees Jesus' rabbinical tassels and she knows if I touch one of them. It's not just like some translations say the hem of his garment. It's really not adequate. It's talking about the fringe of his garment or the tassel, the fringes that, that Jewish men and especially rabbis would put on there. So you know what she's embracing when she touches this? His teaching. He's a rabbi and I'm embracing what he's teaching. 
You see, you cannot receive Christ without receiving the teaching of Christ. Some people are like, well, I like Jesus. He's a good example, but I don't need the Bible and all that stuff. Wait a minute. The two are inseparable. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. You cannot separate the Bible, specifically even the Gospels, from Jesus. To embrace Jesus is to embrace his teaching, and that's what she's looking to for healing. In Luke 4, it says, and they were astonished at his doctrine, Jesus' doctrine. A lot of people think doctrine's a bad word. It's over and over again in the Bible as a good word. And why, did they, why were they astonished at his doctrine? For his word was with authority. Some translations say with power. She knew that the power to be healed was in what Jesus, the gospel that Jesus was teaching. She didn't separate the two. She said, you know, if I just even touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately, which is Mark's favorite word, in 16 short chapters, he uses the word immediately 41 times, and several times in this passage, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Anybody ever had an experience like that where something changed in you and you just knew something was different inside you? And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit of God gave her in this point in time. But here's one of the most fascinating verses in the Bible. Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Now we're going to talk about this more. But when Jesus healed people, it wasn't just like he's a magician just waving a magic wand. There's something transferring from him and his glory and his virtue to the person receiving the healing. And again, the word immediately. He turned about in the crowd and said, hey, who touched my garments? And of course, that's a funny statement to disciples because everybody's touching him. Everybody's like patting him back. Hey, Jesus, you're amazing. You're amazing. Wanting to hug Jesus. Wanting to pat him on the back. Everybody's wanting to be near Jesus. But all of a sudden, Jesus says, who touched me? And now the disciples, they're used to being rebuked by Jesus. They're like, oh, we get to turn the tables here. Now we get to rebuke Jesus. We get to tell him where he's wrong. The disciple says, you know, Jesus, can't you obviously, you, you can hear the sarcasm. If you just read the statement on face value, it's pretty sarcastic. You see the, the, the crowd pressing around you, right? Do you not have, are you blind, Jesus? Can't see all this? And yet you're going to say, who touched me? <laughs> Are you crazy, Jesus? Can't you, what are you, what's wrong with you? And what, what you see here is that there are two types of touching Jesus. Jesus isn't a knucklehead. He's not an idiot. But he knows the difference between a thousand people touching him like this and one person touching him and receiving healing. He knows the difference between the two. See, what happened is some touch Jesus for the religious experience, and they may be changed in small ways, but they're still lost. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, well, I grew up this, I grew up in, in church, and yeah, my dad, my grandfather's a pastor, and blah, blah, blah. And they've, they've had contact with Jesus, but they've never been seriously changed on the inside. And a lot of people in this world, they have religious experiences, and that's what they're looking for. But she touched Jesus in faith and was miraculously changed forever. She knew deep inside of her, not only had this blood problem been healed, her soul had been healed. She knew that she was changed from inside out. She touched, touched Jesus in a different way. And Jesus, being Jesus, he knew it and he felt it within himself. So he looked around and he see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her. Let me tell you when, you, when you have a true encounter with Jesus Christ, you know what happened to you. You don't have to wonder about whether it was real or not. You can't deny it. You, when people say, oh yeah, I used to be a Christian, but now I don't believe in that stuff anymore. You never met the real Jesus. 
You didn't, like, this is Lauren Caden over here. I, I know him, and, and, I, and I've known him how many years now, Lauren? Golly, 17, I don't know, 16, something like that. I can never deny that Lauren Caden had exists. I've met him, okay? I know all the funny things he's done, okay? And so, but so because I know him, I've experienced him firsthand, I can never deny him. I can say I don't like him anymore, but I cannot deny who he is or what, what he is. So when people deny Jesus, they've never met him. They never really. That's why, that's why Jesus will say on Judgment Day to many religious people, depart from me, I never knew you. It's knowing Jesus that makes all the difference. Um, and it says she came to him in fear and trembling, and she fell down. Again, she kneels just like Jairus kneeled before him and told him the whole truth. She told him the whole truth. Proverbs 28, 13 says that he that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them shall have what? Mercy. You want to receive mercy from God? You got to tell him the whole truth. You can't come to Jesus with your little hidden sins over here that nobody else knows about, but he knows. You might as well just be upfront and honest with him about it and come to him just as you are, confessing everything. And he said to her, daughter, and this is interesting, this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus refers to someone as daughter. And it's not a coincidence because who was Jairus wanting to have healed? His daughter. You see the parallel in the story here? Um, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, faith is a popular word today. You can go to Hobby Lobby and buy all kinds of cute little signs to put in your kitchen, in your living room that have faith on it. But the Faith by itself is worthless. I can have faith in a pink elephant, and it's not going to do anything for me, okay? It's what you put your faith in. Jesus said, you know, the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. And what does he do? He tells them the parable of the mustard seed, basically the smallest seed. and says, you know, it doesn't matter how big your faith is. It's what you put your faith in. How many of you are, are scared to fly? Go ahead, just confess your faults right now. Just go ahead and say it. You can say it if you want. We won't embarrass you too much. Anyway, afraid of flying? Good, good. Two people are honest here. All right, cool. So, um, Landy, good to see you, by the way. Let's just say, uh, Landy won't mind if I talk about her because she knows I embarrass her all the time anyway. So, um, let's say Landy and I get on the same plane and we're all going to, a group of us are going to go to a mission trip to Kenya to go see Michaela, okay? And Landy is scared to death and she's praying the whole time and she's crossing herself and she's scared to death she's got a you know the plane's going to crash and i'm like man i love flying put me by the window seat i want to watch everything okay now she has enough faith in the pilot to get on the plane but that's about it i've got enough faith in the pilot to where i'm going to take a nap i don't care this is going to be great will we both arrive in kenya yes it's not how much faith you have. It's just, will, are you willing to take that little step of faith and put your faith in the pilot to get there? So it's not about how much you have. It's who you put your faith in. And that's what made this woman whole. And he tells her two different things. He says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. I believe the go in peace is you're saved. You put your faith in, what I, in, in me as your Messiah. And separate from that, you're also healed from your disease. He could have said, go in peace, and that's it. Remember the, the guy they lowered through the roof? And he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And he stopped. And everybody's like, what? He came for healing. He's like, well, which is easier to say? And he put a big pause between his sins being forgiven and his healing. 
Okay? Because sometimes God forgives sin and people get saved, but they don't always get healed, like the Apostle Paul. Maybe they get healed later, but he puts a, he, he puts a parenthesis between the two, and he heal, she healed the disease. So um, it's interesting that Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus was going to heal his daughter, right? But he also calls this woman daughter because she's the daughter of the ruler of the universe. She's now accepted Christ as her Savior. So we got one girl, little girl, she's special because of who her dad is. But this woman is much more special because she is now a daughter of the king and the ruler of the universe. And that's the beautiful parallel in this story. So I don't care really how bad you feel about yourself. If you know Jesus, your father is the ruler of the universe. And so that's what you need to tell yourself every day. You don't look in the mirror and say, I mean, I'm better looking at everybody else, or I have more money than anybody else, or look at me in my car, here, stop the dislight, I'm going to rev a little bit, you know, or you get a promotion over everybody else. All those things are great, but who you are in Christ is, is the most important thing about your identity. Romans 5 says, therefore, being justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God. She put her faith in Christ, and that made her peace with God. And so, you know, Armistice Day celebrates when the World War ended, and then there was peace. Peace, in many cases, when there's a ceasing of war. Did you know that you, before you were accepted Christ as Savior, if you've done that, you were at war with God? The Bible says that while we were enemies, God sent His Son to die for us. You, lost people need to see yourself as you really are. You're an enemy of God. You may not think about that. You may think you're Switzerland and that you're neutral, but nobody's neutral. Jesus says, you're either for me or what? You're against me. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're now at peace with God. The Heavenly Father embraces you, and he loves you and considers you no more an enemy. So Jesus called her. He called her out of the crowd. So he called her publicly. He didn't say, hey, if you, let's go talk about this separately later. She kind of snuck through the crowd. She didn't want to be detected. She tried to, wanted to be stealth about everything. But he publicly says, hey, who touched me? Come on up here. <laughs> Tell me the whole truth. You know, and, and so he kind of calls her, but not to embarrass her, but he does call her publicly. But he also call, calls her paternally as a father to a daughter. He calls her daughter. And then he also calls her personally. He says, your faith has made you whole. Now, I'll, if you're a young person in here this morning, and we thank the Lord we have many of them, you are not a Christian because your parents are. Okay? God doesn't have any grandchildren. You have to accept Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior. You could have a testimony like Michaela. Grew up in church, grew up in our own ministry, but until you make it personal to where you accept Jesus as my Lord, my Savior, not just in general, my family is Christian, no, you yourself must make that decision on your own personally. And that's how Jesus called her. He also called her peacefully. He said, go in peace, which is the res greatest result of salvation. And then he called her powerfully. He had, the, because of the power he had, he was able to heal her. So all these things that he, Jesus did for her. Let me ask you a question. Have you answered the call from Jesus? You say, well, I'm not sure Jesus is calling me. Well, let me just share what the scripture says. In Acts 17, 30, it says, God commands how many people? All people everywhere to repent. So every, all people includes me. All people includes you. 
So if you're wondering if Jesus is calling you, he's calling you to repentance. He's calling you to realize you are a sinner. But the great news is you have a Savior, Jesus Christ, that, that he wants to save your soul. The question is, will you answer the call? Because someday he is coming to judge the, the world, you and me. So while he was still speaking, so he's talking, and these people are rude. They come up and interrupt, and they pull Jairus aside. And we know that they pull him aside because Jesus has to overhear the conversation. They say, Jairus, sorry, bad news. Your daughter's dead. And then I think kind of maliciously they say, so you don't need to trouble this teacher anymore. Don't bother him anymore because he was on his way, and he's got to stop and help this woman over here. Didn't he know this was an emergency? Now think about that. While, while Jesus is talking to this woman, Jairus is like, um, Jesus, we got to go. My daughter's dying. Can we please go? And he's like, no, I want to talk to this lady right here. And it's like, well, wait, she's been dealing with this for 12 years. My daughter could die any minute now. You know, we need to trust Jesus' timing in the matter, don't we? How many of you ever thought that Jesus was late? <laughs> that Jesus didn't show up on time? But Jesus ne is never late. He's His timing is perfect. And what does he tell them? He overhears what they're saying because they're trying to have this trash talking talk about conversation about Jesus off to the side. But he, Jesus hears everything. So he says to the ruler, hey, do not fear. What? Read those words in blue with me. Only believe. Only believe. I, I don't know what's stressing you out this week. Your job may be on the line. You might be getting an eviction notice. You might be dealing with cancer or loving someone who is. You fill in the blank. The Lord says to you, do not fear, only believe. You see, only believe means to only trust, to trust Jesus. If we are anxious, if we're full of fear and fret, you know what we're not doing? We're not believing or trusting Jesus. You can't have it both ways. Now, we all go back and forth. You know, I trust Jesus. I, I, I got to fix it. I trust Jesus. I got to fix it. And what we need to do is just give up on trying to fix it. Do all we can, but then go to Jesus and trust him for the results, and don't leave sleep over it. Have you, how many of you ever heard the phrase that, that, that fear not is in the Bible 365 times, one for every day of the year? How many of you heard that before? Okay. Wow, I thought more than her. Actually, it's not true. <laughs> okay. I did a little research on it, and I've heard preachers repeat that. Brother Stan, you ever heard that before? It's not true. Anyway, um, but you, you'll hear a lot of things that people repeat and They'll put on TikTok and whatever, all this Christian stuff, and then you do a little research. It's actually not true. It is in there over 300 times, and so that's plenty enough for us to believe it and to trust the Lord. And then here's what's interesting. This crowd has been, from the moment he got off the boat, thousands are pressing in on him. And he says, y'all can't follow me anymore. And I don't know how he did this. I don't know if he trusted in all these, because he took three Peter, James, and John is in a circle with him. What did he do? Tell the other nine, okay, you guys hold back the crowd while we get a running start. I'm not sure exactly how he made everybody stop following, but somehow he did. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Now, it could have said we came to Jairus' house. But he wants to remind you, this is the guy who's a big deal at the synagogue, and even his prayers can't heal his daughter, that he even had to humble himself for Jesus. And Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, in this culture, and this is still true in the Middle East, they pay people to be public mourners. They pay people to cry out loud and weep and wail because the more people you have crying at your funeral, the bigger the deal you are. 
And Jairus is a big deal because usually if you're the ruler of the synagogue, it means you're probably also successful in business, successful in the community. And so even the poorest of people were required socially to have one flute player and two mourners at a minimum. So he probably has dozens of them, and they're all weeping and wailing. And usually, traditionally, also, they rip their clothes. They, they put on a big show. You know, in, in our Western civilization, we're pretty low-key. We kind of push back our tears. We don't cry. If you can watch in the Middle East. Like, watch if there's like a terrorist attack in Israel, people in the streets and how they react. It's totally different in the, in the Middle East. And Jesus says to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. So here's the second time that Jesus, to human eyes, looks like an idiot. Earlier, he's like, who touched me? And they're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? But doesn't Jesus see things differently than we do? What, what does Proverbs 3 says? Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Sometimes the way we as humans understand things, we're way off. Jesus is seeing things from an eternal perspective. Because death to him is just sleep. And, it, and he said, so therefore she sleep. The Apostle Paul talks about we shall not all sleep, but in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ shall rise. So the Bible refers it poetically to sleep. Jesus is seeing the big picture, what the future is about to happen. And so what did they do? For the second time in the story, they're laughing at Jesus. Don't recommend that. <laughs> I, I would be careful about doing that. But do you know in the culture we live in today, the 21st century, people are laughing at Jesus. You say you're a Christian, you could lose your job. You could get a bad grade in your college exam just because you have a different view of reality than the world around you. But you know what he does? Okay, you want to laugh at me? Fine. Y'all just get out of the house. Y'all are fixing to miss an amazing miracle. Just get out. Just clear out. Clear out. And so here Jesus tells thousands, don't follow me. And here he tells people in the house, morning, get out of the house. Everybody just go on out and chew. I don't know how he did that. I don't know how firm he was, but I imagine he was perceived as rude. And it says he took the child's father and mother, and those who were with him, who are who? Peter, James, and John, and then you got Jesus, and you got the little girl. I like the number seven. Don't want to put too much in that, but I think that's part of what's in the room there. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kume, which means little girl, and this culturally is very affectionate. It's like baby girl, sweetheart, honey pie, Whenever you, whether it's affectionate terms you use for kids, that's what he's using for her. Little girl, I say to you, arise. You see, all that she was doing was resurrection practice. <laughs> she was just practicing for the resurrection. You know, someday all of us are going to go to sleep, and Jesus is going to say, arise. And we're going to rise alive, not alive like this little girl to die again, but glorified, resurrected, holy bodies that when will happen when Jesus comes again. And immediately, there's the word again, Mark's favorite word, the girl got up and began walking. Now, the word here in the context, it means walking around. Be and why is she doing this? Because she's 12 years old. That's what that's word for means, because she's 12 years old. So if, she had, if Jesus had raised one of us, we'd have been like, oh, okay, great, great, cool, good. Glad to meet you, Jesus, you know. But she's like, yay! I, I can even imagine her skipping around the room. And, and they were... They being mom, dad, Peter, James, John, were overcome with amazement. This was the most, one of the most mind-blowing things they had ever seen. And this is the Peter, James, and John who just saw Jesus calm the sea. Isn't it great that you don't have to ever grow tired of being amazed with Jesus? Jesus does one amazing thing after another, after another, and every time it's like, wow, wow, you know, Unfortunately, we get bored with people, we get bored with our relationships, we get bored with 
whatever it is we like, but we never get bored with Jesus. He always becomes bigger in our eyes than ever before. And Luke adds a detail. It says her spirit returned. So that means her spirit had left. So the definition of, of death is the separation of body and spirit. So on whatever level, I don't know how much stock to put in this. I mean, I, I put a lot of stock in this, but I don't put a lot of stock in near-death experiences. I think some of them are legitimate. Okay, I think there's just too much detail in those. I think some are, are weird and that I, some I don't believe. But I've heard stories. There was a, a young man who experienced a severe head trauma. He was in the emergency room, and he flatlined, and he was gone. And he was like on the fifth floor of this hospital, and he said that he, his, his spirit rose above all the people working on him, and he described in detail the different instruments and what they were reading in the room. And then as he went up above the building, which on the eighth floor, the top of the building, he told the doctors when he revived, there's a pair of running shoes up on top of the building with the shoelaces open, tucked under the left side, and they're blue. And they went up there and looked, and there they were. And this is the kind of stuff that's like, wow, that's creepy and crazy. And if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I'd say, oh, I don't believe in all that stuff. But I believe there's too much of it that's legitimate. But this, lady, this girl's spirit had left her body. And so there is something amazing there about the way that God created us to where these, we cannot deny the supernatural. This world wants to say, no, science, science, you're just a ball of chemicals and that you're just, you've just evolved to be the way you are and there's nothing more to you. And I'm telling you, there is a spirit inside of you. There is a spirit inside of you that is separate from your body. And here's what's interesting. He strictly charged them. Now, how does Jesus strictly charge people? Don't tell anybody. I'm serious. Don't you tell anybody. And I have a hard time with that kind of Jesus, but this is what it says here. It says he strictly charged them. Don't you tell anybody. And Jesus had done this all different times in the Bible where he told people not to tell. And there's different reasons we could discuss that. But think about this. He just, had a, he just had his disciples rebuke him in front of everybody. You don't even know who's touching you, you know. And then they have all, all these mourners, dozens of people, maybe 50, 100 people, all laughing at him when he says the child's not dead, she's just sleeping. If I was Jesus and I raised this little girl, I'd be like, hey, come here, Talitha Kumi. Let's go outside and show everybody. And I'd be like, hey, everybody, what, remember what I said about she's sleeping? Boom, right here. I'd be like, attention, everybody. I was right. You were wrong. Drop the mic. That's what I'd be doing. And Jesus is like, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody at all. Um, I had a bag here to catch the microphone, just in case you're worried about that. So, 12 years prior, this woman's life had fallen apart. She was unclean. She's sick every day. She feels horrible. She spends everything she has to see all the doctors, and nobody's helping. They're all making it worse. Her family wants nothing to do with her, can't have anything to do with her. Life had fallen apart, and now, 12 years later, Jesus is everything, and Jesus has healed her. 12 years earlier, Jairus' world was full of joy, full of hugs, and full of kisses, and now all of a sudden, he went from, my daughter's dead, to Jesus raises her from the dead. So, so two amazing stories here, and Mark puts them together for a reason. Mark likes to do this. He starts a story, 
The story gets interrupted by something, and then he finishes the story. Of course, we know that as a chiastic structure, but I'll talk to you about that more in a second. So Jairus and his daughter, Jairus compared to the sick woman, he was a social leader, and she was a social outcast. He was religiously admired by everybody in the synagogue, and she was religiously unclean, forbidden to go to the temple. Jairus, when, when all this was going down, he was surrounded by family and friends. And then this woman was forsaken by family and friends. Jairus' need was urgent. He needed help right now. His daughter's dying. In fact, the urgency had passed because she had actually died. This woman had an old problem. It had been going on for 12 years. This little girl was just now becoming a woman, and this sick woman was losing her womanhood. And then Jairus publicly seeks Jesus' help, and this woman sneaks up on Jesus and secretly looks for his help. Amazing contrast between these two stories, isn't it? And yet, these two stories, there's also several things they had in common. Both were helpless to the point where they were going to go to Jesus because no one else, no doctor, no one in the synagogue, no Pharisee could help them. But both came and knelt before Jesus. What does kneeling imply? It's humility. You bow before someone who is greater in authority than you are. And both had crowds questioning Jesus. What do you mean who touched you? What do you mean she's dead? And, and you need to really understand that the world around you is going to question your decision to follow Christ. That when you decide that you believe the Bible in a world where they say, no, the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. When you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and they say, oh, Jesus is homophobic and narrow-minded, and you, and you have the world pressing against you, you need to decide what you're going to believe in. That you need to realize you're helpless on your way to hell, deserving hell like I am, but Jesus took your place on the cross. That you, if we kneel before him, we will humble ourselves. Even if the crowd says, don't do it, we can trust in Christ. I've mentioned before chiastic structure. And, and for those who are new, basically it's a poetry device that, that people use in the Middle East where it's like a sandwich. Bread, lettuce, meat, and lettuce again, and then bread. What's the most important part of the sandwich? The meat, right? Well, chiastic structure begins with one thing and ends with the same thing. So if you look at this passage right here, and again, it's small print, but just go with me here. It starts with the ruler of the synagogue. It ends with the ruler of the synagogue. It continues to talk about the daughter uh, at the point of death, and it ends towards the end, the daughter is dead. And then it talks about this woman who Jesus later calls daughter in the green there. And as it works its way into the middle, it says that um, the crowd, and it's talking about the crowd being touched, and then towards the other end of the story, it talks about the crowd being touched. But what's the meat of this passage? Jesus perceiving in that power had gone out from him. This is what Mark is saying. Here's the main point of this passage. You see, let's suppose uh, someone came to your house, and they knocked over a very valuable vase, and it broke, okay? And they could say, hey, I'm sorry, I'll pay for it. And you're thinking, man, it's $195. Um, but you're like, no, 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 that's okay, that's okay. No, no really, I, I'll pay you for it, I'll do something. And you say, no, no, don't worry about it, I forgive you, it's okay. Now, can you just say goodbye to it and that's it? No, you've just lost something worth $195. In order to forgive somebody, you must lose. And see, we think that we don't want to lose anything. Sometimes when you forgive, you lose face. 
When you forgive, you lose the right to get revenge and retaliate how they've hurt you. When you forgive, you give up a whole lot of things, and you're the one who loses. And that's exactly what goes out. When Jesus heals someone or Jesus chooses to forgive someone, Jesus has to lose something in order for us to gain something. Stay with me here. Grace always comes at a price. We say salvation is free, and it is, amen? amen. But it costs Jesus everything. It costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. You see, Jairus had an only daughter, and she died. And that, that was terrifying to him. God the Father had an only son, and he lost him also. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God, our Heavenly Father, knows how Jairus felt to lose an only child. This woman had an issue of blood. This was a problem with her system, and, and it was killing her every day. Jesus also had an issue with the loss of blood. He poured out every drop for you and for me. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have redemption. Redemption when you take something that is worthless and you redeem it to make it something worthwhile again. And how did He redeem us? Through His blood. It was the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses when you go places you shouldn't go and do things you should not do. And we've all done that. And we are saved according to the riches of His grace. Do you know Jesus Christ? Just like that little girl had to be helpless before Jesus, and he raised her. Just like that lady with the disease, she was helpless, and she had to kneel before Jesus. Have you ever knelt before Christ and made him the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul? You can do that right here and right now today. I would like for everybody, if you don't mind, to just pray right now, to bow your heads. If you know for sure you know Christ, to pray that ask God would pull back the blindness that Satan has over people's eyes and people's hearts, and that you would just pray that God would do that and the Holy Spirit would do a work here this morning. But if you do not know for sure you're saved, maybe your story is like Michaela. You've grown up in church, but you really don't know Jesus. You can know him today. You could pray a prayer, something like this. The prayer does not save you, but your heart of faith would, will. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. My memory haunts me every day of all the things I've done and so many ways I've failed and the ways I've made a mess of my life. I deserve punishment, but Lord, I'm thankful you took the nails in your hand instead of mine. You took the crown that should have been on my head. You took my cross. I thank you for dying in my place and paying the price that I could not pay and living the life that I cannot live. I therefore give my life to you and make you the Lord of my life. And I thank you for forgiving all of my sins, past, present, and future. And I thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision, man, I'd love to hear about that. You, you are now a daughter of the king like that woman is, was. And so please contact me. This is my cell phone number. You can call me or text me anytime. And I'd love to hear from you. All right, and right now we're going to do question and answers. Tori, you want to come help me with that? We're going to answer some questions. looks like some have already come in. You can text me. If, if your text doesn't appear to be going through because of reception here, you can raise your hand, and we'll do that as well. Um, here we go. And I dropped your mic, Tori. Sorry. <laughs> there you go. Do you think one reason Jesus told 
jar us not to tell anyone so that the Pharisees wouldn't have any positive info so they would still kill Jesus. Um, yes, I think that's part of it. I think one of the theories behind why Jesus went around telling people not to tell is because he didn't want his miracles to spread faster than his teaching. Because they wanted, what kind of Messiah did they want? They wanted someone who kicked the Romans out and become king of the world. He didn't come first as a conquering king. That's later. That's any day now. He came as a suffering servant. And he wanted that to be the primary message. He just validated his message with his miracles. But the miracles weren't the main thing. It was what he was teaching. And so he didn't want the miracles to spread faster than his teaching. He wanted people to receive his teaching more than just the free miracles and, and all the show showbiz. All right. So would you mind being at the guest table after church to receive Connect cards and give out T-shirts? Oh, no, that's... Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that was all in. That's, a, that's it? Any, that all right. Any questions that didn't come through? If you can raise your hand, go on once. All right. All right, cool. That was for you. <laughs> yeah, so there you, All right. Um, so let's stand, and we're going to pray. I'm glad you didn't read the one from Tammy. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> All right. It's been good to be in God's house. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for loving us. Uh, Father, we are so glad that we get to see the gospel through every story that you have presented to us in the gospel of Mark. Lord, if there's someone here today that's still hesitant to, to trust you, I pray that they would. I pray that we would go forth with confidence, knowing that the very Jesus who did all these miracles is the one who's still in control of our lives. And therefore, we can trust him with our paycheck, with our bank account, with our health, with our marriage, with our kids. Lord, help us to trust you more and to only believe. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.